Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Ancient History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Michael Lease, author of the book Making Money in Ancient Athens. Michael, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Mark. It's really nice to be on here. Well, it's nice to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. I'm an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of New Hampshire. And I started off as a classicist. I took Greek and Latin for many years, wanted to do ancient history, um, and eventually went on to grad school to work on ancient Greek history and uh, started getting focused in economic history pretty early in that process and came across this topic while I was doing my graduate work. And uh, I've been working on it ever since. It's a fascinating topic. And it's one that I, I had all sorts of questions about because I, I was fascinated by how it is you can recover economic history, especially given you wouldn't think that. I mean, nowadays we think of economic history in terms of statistics. We think of it in terms of all sorts of analytical measurements that we don't necessarily, you know, associate with with ancient history or, you know, or you know the information available about it. How is it that you're able to do economic history about the uh, ancient about ancient Greece? That's a really good question. It's uh, there have been a lot of people who have um, sort of claimed that you could not do economic history exactly for the reason that we don't have statistics or any kind of quantitative data that, that can be reliably reconstructed and applied to the the economy as a whole, like like GDP or um, you know gross income or anything like that. So there have been a number of different approaches to try to do economic history. And um, at one point, I was thinking of doing something quantitative myself, because we do have some data from the ancient world. But um, then pretty quickly, I moved on to doing a qualitative study. The um, main issue that I came across that kept recurring, and was was emphasized over and over again about the, the real differences between the ancient and the modern economy was actually a qualitative issue. It was, um, did the people in the ancient world think and act the same way that we do, especially when it comes to economic matters? So uh, the evidence that was in the 
um, source material for ancient Greece and especially for Athens was actually sufficient to be able to address this issue. It's a fascinating topic, and I, I found it very interesting to read about it because it's a question that – it's one of those questions that doesn't pop to mind. It's one of those things that I, I think about when, when I read ancient history. It's just I assume it. And yet you demonstrate that it, it is a, a, not only a worthwhile question, but it's one that there's a lot of interesting information about. And it really opens a, an aspect of uh, Greek history that – yeah, we don't often think about the 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 claims that um, you come across in, in a lot of the older scholarship, and a lot of this goes back to the 19th century, starting with Marx and Weber, are are really eye catching, and and I kept coming back to these things, just seeing how they would argue the differences in in mental processes, the differences in attitudes towards economic activity the different value systems that discourage them from, from behaving like modern capitalists. Um, these are very strong, provocative statements, and they uh, shaped the field for decades and, and even generations. And every time I would come and uh, away from that, that scholarship, that theory, and then look at the ancient Greek evidence, I, I didn't see any of the things that they were talking about. So I knew that there was a very sort of um, a, a large amount of data that could be applied to this issue uh, to sort of prove that ancient people were not as different as has often been argued and is still argued today by by a number of people in a number of different fields. And when you really get into the to the material and you see um, how they were making the decisions they were making, um, what kind of uh, approach they took to different economic issues and problems, uh, they become much more like the modern uh, mind than what than what we see in a, in a lot of scholarship. That was one of the things that struck me as I was reading it was, was the, the, the similarities. And, and, and it was something I thought you did very nicely when you brought in a lot of modern uh, authors about uh, contemporary economics and how a lot of their ideas and, and uh, axioms uh, were at play in the ancient world as well. Absolutely. It, when, you're, when you're reading, um, because I had to read modern economic theory, uh, anthropological theory, economic history, studied a wide variety of um, pre-modern societies like uh, not just ancient Greece, but also Rome, uh, ancient Mesopotamia, the Italian city-states during the Renaissance period, and early modern Europe. And when you're comparing all these things, and then you're looking at how modern economists discuss um, individual behavior, economic decision-making, the sort of mentality of the people, um, whether or not it's 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 approximate to what uh, modern capitalists have, you, you start to see just well. First of all, what a complex issue this is. How many different um, uh, problems are intersecting within you know pretty much every every part of the scholarship. But also when you when you're looking at this, you you start to see things in the ancient evidence that you didn't see before you started reading these modern economists and uh, about later economic systems. So I took this perspective, reading modern economics, studying these other ancient and pre-modern historical societies down to the Industrial Revolution. And even after, uh, a lot of the material I cite is talking about economic behavior in the 20th and 21st century. When, when you're looking at all of these things, and then you look back at the ancient evidence, uh, it becomes pretty clear that the 
uh, claims that ancient Greeks and, you know, I'll, I'll include Romans and, and Mesopotamians and many other ancient peoples in this too, um, that they that they did not think and act the way modern economically rational actors act. Um, just it, it, it completely um, it is undermined by the evidence. There, there's so much evidence to support the idea that they were just as rational and irrational as we are. And I think bringing in that full picture was um, kind of decisive in, in, in being able to prove the point in the end, as I, as I think I do. I do want to get into uh, the case studies that you examine in your book, but I, I want to begin by looking at your explanation or your analysis of the ancient writings about profit and wealth maximization, because you, you write about uh, these these distinguished authors, you know, Xenophon, Plato, and Aristotle. And we associate them with philosophy, with science, with history. We don't think of them as economic writers. And while they certainly were not writing in the vein of, say, uh, Adam Smith or Karl Marx, you, you point out that they do have a lot to, they, they do reveal a lot about what the ancient Greeks thought about in terms of not just profit, but ma wealth maximization. Yeah, yes, there's a ton in these philosophers and the um, sort of the nitty gritty of my individual case studies, which I'm sure we'll get to is is about, you know, um, the way ancient Greeks managed their own personal estates. And, and we can get into the details of that. But there's so much evidence about how Greeks overall uh, or Athenians overall behaved in the economy that um, these philosophers, Xenophon, Plato and Aristotle describe in great detail. And when you are looking at these theories that really are trying to explain the rise of the modern economy, um, this is kind of the focus of, of much economic history. And the main theory um, keeps coming in different forms, and it's sort of um, articulated differently in, in different fields, different contexts, different theorists, that uh, ancient people were not economically rational and that they did not try to maximize their profits. They did not try to continuously reinvest their profits into a further productive enterprise. When you read Xenophon, Plato, and Aristotle, you actually get a much different picture than this. You see Greeks um, responding to fluctuations in market prices, um, market prices that are running according to supply and demand, just like in the modern economy. And the way they're responding to these market price changes is by trying to reinvest in more profitable enterprise. You also see these discussions about the um, mental processes that are guiding ancient Greeks when they're making their economic decisions. So Plato and Aristotle have very detailed, uh, what I call theories of the mind, they see the mind in ancient Greek, and, and the, um, the Greek for that is psuche, so the word that gives us psychology. But the, um, the mind or the soul, which, which, which psuche also means in ancient Greek, but they didn't have the same kind of uh, theory about the, the separation between the mind and the soul that we have, which, which is another fascinating topic. But when I was getting into these theories of the mind, I started to see some of the best evidence that had never been discussed in any of these um, studies of the ancient economy. Uh, what we see is a uh, rational part of the mind, which engages in rational decision making and in a very similar process that's described in modern uh, theory of rational choice and, and economic rationality in particular. 
We also see that there is a um, an emotional part of the psuche, which um, directs people to behave in, in certain ways and sort of makes them more impulsive or more likely to try to pursue um, pleasure or um, wealth or things, other things like this. So incorporating emotions into the discussion of economic decision-making uh, was, was really important. I wanted to make sure I did that. But these theories of the mind that Plato and Aristotle have, when you're looking at um, how they're seeing people behave, they see that they are um, trying to maximize their pleasure. They're trying to maximize um, their, their return. And it depends on the person. But um, often one of the main goals is wealth for the, the things that are people trying to maximize. And Plato even calls um, one of the parts of the mind the, uh, the money-loving portion of the mind or the money-making por portion of the mind. And, and this was the kind of thing that really jumped out at me and, and uh, in my mind really needed to be incorporated into the discussion of uh, ancient economic history. Because if, if Plato and Aristotle are saying things that um, are so fundamental that the Greeks have an entire portion of their mind that could be labeled the money-loving or the money-making portion of the mind. Uh, this is absolutely significant for how we interpret the behavior of the people in that society. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if we could now turn to those case studies and, and start by talking about what you spend the most space on in your book, which is discussing the family estates. And, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to pronounce the Greek name for them that you use because my, my ancient Greek is, is non-existent. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about these estates, uh, perhaps a, a bit as to, you know, how, how we what, what, how we can, you know, retrieve this information that we have about them, but also how it was that they sought to make money on these estates and how this is uh how this informs uh, this uh, understanding that you've uh, derived about, you know, how the Greeks made money. Right. Yeah. So um, the whole um, critique that had been leveled against people who tried to argue for economic rationality um, in the pre-modern world before was that was that we don't see individuals over the course of their lifetime trying to maximize profit or wealth with um clearly described processes of economic decision-making with, with um, a wide range of options at their disposal. Um, often people just assumed that agriculture and land were the only um, available investments. So, so some, of the, some of the arguments for economic rationality in the past um, were shot down quite incisively by uh, other members of the field for, for very specific reasons. And, and the reasons were that um, what we needed to see to prove economic rationality was um, the uh, decision-making process, both over the course of a person's career, over the course of their lifetime, and also within individual transactions. Now, the estate management cases that I look at in Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, or sorry, Chapter 3 and Chapter 4, um, Oh, no, chapter two and chapter three. Yes, sorry, the, the chapter numbers changed um, from one time to the next. These are all estates whose um, contents are described at length in ancient Greek lawsuit, private lawsuit cases. And these uh, private lawsuit cases are an absolute treasure trove for economic behavior of many other aspects of, of, of ancient life as well. But what we see are... Um, individual estates 
whose contents are described at length and whose owners' uh, motivations, their um, actions, the decisions that they make, both within individual transactions and over the course of their career, can be reproduced in, in, in pretty reasonable uh, confidence. And what we see is um, for, so I, so I divide the estates uh, between those that are diversified um, across uh, a number of different um, types of production or, or economic profitable activity, and then those that are specialized in one type of uh, profitable um, activity. And the reason for that is because diversification has often been pointed to as being a um, sort of traditional, um, more um, risk-averse activity that's uh, characteristic more of a what what has often been called in the in the scholarship a quote unquote traditional peasant mindset, <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is the kind of thing that's been dominant in the field for for decades, and and it's, it's changed you know a lot in the last you know twenty twenty five years or so, but uh, th these sorts of arguments recur in in different forms. So what I wanted to show here was that the diversification that we see in ancient Greek estate management actually could follow a profit and long-term wealth-oriented strategy and not one that was just um, to try to, you know, buffer the risks of rain and, and you know, temperature shifts and, and locusts, you know, descending on fields and things like that. So looking at these uh, diversified estates, what I saw was in almost every case where they the owners tried to acquire new properties, there was always a profitable um, sort of outcome for that or a profit-oriented motivation for that. And this is different from the risk-averse or risk-minimizing uh, motivation that's that's usually been argued for the ancient world. And you can see the sort of long-term orientation towards profit um, in a number of ways. One is when people acquire um, more risky, more high-risk acquisitions to um, increase their profitability alongside more stable investments that they already have that are already generating uh, a steady income. So, so a lot of the new properties that are acquired or new economic activities that people enter are uh, characterized by higher risk and higher profit rather than lower risk. And, uh, and lower return. Now, the other thing that we see is um, long-term wealth maximization that is made possible through um, avoiding taxes. Tax evasion is rampant throughout all of history. <laughs> and we, we, talk right. about, <laughs> we talk about it today. There's nothing new about it at all. And what we see in the evidence for ancient Greece, it's not just Athens, we get it from Syracuse, we get it from a number of other city-states as well, but the um, desire to avoid taxation, when we see this happening on an individual estate, the long-term result of this is um, really remarkable growth and, and kind of unnatural. I'm not gonna say exponential growth necessarily, but um, really otherwise impossible long-term growth. So we have um, a couple of examples. The um, 
uh, the probably the longest case that I look at is um, the father of the famous orator Demosthenes, who is the um, sort of most most prolific or at least best preserved um, rhetorical rhetorician speaker from from ancient Athens. His father managed an estate that um, was able to avoid taxation, it seems, throughout uh, the course of his entire career. And it seems that it was only when Demosthenes himself inherited the estate, and, and he actually had some guardians who were embezzling from it um, after his father died and before Demosthenes was able to claim it. Uh, but it was only after this, the estate was made public in um, a series of actions, including the in inheritance case that Demosthenes himself brought against his guardians, um, that only after all that publicity had had drawn attention to the estate that finally um, it started to be subject to taxation and Demosthenes himself had to pay taxes um, as a result of this. But his father was able to avoid it his entire career and, and had an estate that was about five times the level that we would expect for someone to have to pay, taxation, uh, to pay taxes in ancient Athens. Now, one more is um, um, in chapter two, my first example, um, this, uh, this uh, estate owner, owner named Arizalos and Arizalos is explicitly said to have um, acquired profitable mining um, interests to uh, increase his, the profitability and the return to his estate. But then he sold his most visibly productive assets when it became clear that he was um, going to be subject to, to paying taxes to the state. And once he's he said that he feared liturgies, which is, is the form of taxation in ancient Athens, once it said that he became fearful of those, he he sold all of his visible assets that were producing um, profit and reinvested that wealth into a into a hidden form. So hiding wealth from the state allowed for really remarkable long term uh, wealth maximization, and that's one of the patterns that I'm arguing is um, supporting this economically rational, profit oriented, maximizing uh, approach to estate management. Yeah, that gets to something that that occurred to me as I was reading the book is is the degree to which you are, are are reinforcing the adage about how man is an economic animal because there's so much behavior that we see that we can associate with them and I'm thinking when, when you talk about the question of specialization you begin not with uh, Demosthenes or uh, another you know ancient actor you begin with Andrew Carnegie and you you know have his you know very famous. Uh, seemingly, uh, uh, you know, contradictory, you know, comment that instead of diversifying, you need to specialize and how shocking that was to common sense in the 19th century. And yet you point out that that was something that they understood back then. And you explained how, you know, that was something that was actually rewarded in terms of how the people who did specialize oftentimes built these very spectacular fortunes and, and were and, and enjoyed uh, enormous prosperity. Absolutely. The, um, you know, keep, keep your eggs in one batch basket and watch that basket. Um, that, that, that quote by Carnegie really resonated with, um, what I was seeing in the ancient material. So some of the most spectacular fortunes that we see were focused in the uh, silver mining industry in Athens, uh, manufacturing industry, especially wartime manufacturing during the Peloponnesian War, for a very large, um, uh, large market with 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 endless demand. Also, for bankers and money lenders, we see the 
um, long-term specialization in these highly profitable, very risky, but but um, with with really unparalleled returns. Um, this kind of specialization created absolutely fantastic fortunes, some of which modern scholars don't even believe because they're they're so um, they're they're really they're really so amazing, and and even some ancient. Uh, people mention these fortunes and they say there's no way that they could have made that much. But um, it, the, the number of estates that we have, the level of wealth from people who specialize in silver mining, production, uh, banking and money lending uh, really consistently across the board shows that that specializing in these activities long term was um, one of the main ways that that people would try to maximize their profits, try to increase the size of their estates, try to maximize their wealth over the course of their long time uh, of their of their lifetime, uh, just like a modern capitalist. And and what we see is a uh, continuous reinvestment of profit into continuously productive enterprise. And the sort of implications of this are um, really important. And, and, and we can save some of that for the end if you want. But um, the careers that we have preserved for bankers, silver miners, and, and, and money lenders show us that the people who did were able to succeed in these fields. There was a lot of competition or a lot of people who entered and exit. A lot of bank failures because so many people went into the field and, and so overextended themselves in risky banking uh, or money lending practices that, that they went under. We hear about banks going under all the time. And then bankers going into hiding so that they don't have to repay their creditors and, <laughs> and things like this. Um, but the the overall sort of implication of all this is that the the mentality that we usually say or that many people say was responsible for the modern industrial capitalist system was already there in ancient Greece. And it's just that no one has proven this for the pre-modern world yet. Um, so so yeah, this was this was um but a really important set of, of estates, people specializing long-term and reinvesting their profits in that, in that productive enterprise that was, that was yielding them so much money that really points to this kind of modern economic rationality um, that was pretty widespread among their population. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As you explained, though, not everyone sought to make their money honestly. And this gets to one of my favorite parts of your book, which is your description of, of is, is it Xenothemus? 
and 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 his case with regarding maritime trade. And I thought it was fascinating, not just because it's an example of of what we might think of as as you know, a classic case of fraud in, in in a literal sense, but it's also how it exposes the how the differences that existed. How we're not talking about a world where you have a concept of international law. You have a lot of you know legality in terms that governing these transactions. That legality stops at the city state's border and a lot of these uh merchants and bankers oftentimes use that gray area that existed or or that that advantage of imperfect information to uh you know not just make money but sometimes do try to do so fraudulently absolutely and and i think for the arguments i'm trying to make here and the sort of similarities that i'm trying to draw with the modern world modern economic uh sort of uh, activity, the sort of strategies people have used. Uh, these fraudulent characters, the ones who took advantage of the um, sort of gray area of international enforcement in between city-states, especially on the open seas, uh, really shows this kind of opportunistic, um, profit-hungry, profit-maximizing uh, activity. And when you're looking at this sort of you know area in which traders and money lenders are able to operate without you know sort of fear of of a, a city coming and enforcing its law uh, it really was kind of the wild west in a lot of ways and and what we see are um, examples of people who will make a deal in one port and then they'll come and they'll make uh, a deal on the same goods at the next port and then they'll make a deal on the same goods at the next port and just pile up the money and then plan just to escape and so what we have that, here that, that, that reminded me of when I was reading, I just couldn't help think of the producers, the Mel Brooks uh, play in the movie, because <laughs> it sounded oh. like that. You know, we're going to get enough investors here going and then we're going <laughs> to I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil the story. Go, go on. I'm sorry. Yes. No, that's yes. That's exactly what it is. So yeah, it's, this, <laughs> it's exactly this kind of uh, producers like scheme where um, you can just because there's there's no you know, there are no cell phones, there's no long distance communication. Uh, there's no ID cards. There's no um, anything like that. Really, uh, someone could operate with anonymity. They could move faster than the information about whatever reputation they had acquired uh, could move. So they could stay ahead of any uh, warnings if someone uh, did know that they were up to anything sketchy. And they could make enough money uh, in, in the short term that they could then go off and retire with it. And um, in, in a lot of ways, when we're thinking about ancient trade, we, we sort of have this modern model in our mind where there's, um, you know, just sort of a, at, at least a well-developed information system and, and surveillance and, and police and this sort of thing. But really, um, when we're talking about ancient Greek um, trade, especially outside of a polis, because they, they were able to police within the bounds of their own city state. And, and this is why their, their local markets were all um uh, filled with trust and 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 encouraged trade and 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 were actually pretty well controlled. Um, but once you got out into the open sea in between states, it was it was at, it was more like what we would consider um, sort of the black market. So um, people are operating more in ways that they do in international arms smuggling or uh, international drug trade or 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 something like that. So that kind of activity. Um, being so rampant in the ancient economy, or at least being enough uh, attested in the material that we have multiple speeches describing it, 
uh, and and laws that the ancient Greeks had to pass to try to fight it, that it was believable to their audience. And we can see it as believable as well, because we see um, sort of modern drug dealers acting the same way or um, other people engaged in, in certain kind of illegal economic economic activity. So that kind of that kind of activity being present in the ancient Greek evidence was, uh, I think, really another decisive sort of indication that uh, the the way people are behaving, the way they're manipulating information, the way they're trying to restrict access to profitable opportunities to themselves and the people closest to them, um, really shows just how much uh, how familiar their actions are. Uh, to to someone in the modern world, and and we we hear about stuff like this in the news all the time, and when you read it in an ancient Greek uh, court case, it's 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 really you know it's almost like the Judge Judy sometimes I say of the <laughs> of the ancient world, but but the, these are real people, and the things they're doing are are familiar to us today, and and it's just it's really it's it's uncanny almost just just how similar we are to the ancient Greeks. And that, and of course, the fact that they were willing to engage in such fraudulent activities, which you know, even in the more uh, you know lawless gray areas that existed, were nonetheless you know uh, risky, demonstrates the, uh, just how powerful of motivation the concept of profit maximization was. That they could have gotten a a profit, for example, on a shipment of grain, but you know, you have these people that are willing to engage in fraud because they can make three, four or five times more by engaging in this fraud and, and how that, that, that there was no, uh, you know, constraint or it was, it was a thought that very much occurred to this idea. Let's go ahead and make as much money as possible. That's a goal that, that, that these people aspired to and were in their, in those instances willing to do so illegally. Right. And, and it's in these maritime trade uh, deals that we really see, the motivation, the, the the mentality that's going into these these specific transactions, we see them trying to maximize the number of transactions they can make uh, during a single trip. So they overload ships to the point that they sink. Uh, we see them um, trying to maximize the amount of money they can get from um, a single uh, trade voyage. They they even try to maximize the number of deals they can make from a single loan. So usually a loan's made for one deal. But then if they get to the next port and they find that there's a better deal they can make with that money, they'll do that instead and then come back and try to make a second or third deal before they have to go back and pay the original loan. So they're trying to maximize the number of deals and profits that they can flip during the course of a single loan. And and these loan contracts have um, time limits built into them as well. So they could actually calculate whether it was more profitable to break the, the due date and the loan. Uh, contract the original loan contract so that they could make multiple um, separate what would be essentially illegal side deals because in the end the amount of profit they could get from multiple deals using one one original loan could be more than just satisfying the terms of that original loan and and like you were saying this kind of really uh, almost reckless you know but um, just you, you can see their thirst for for money and and how um, just, just how closely calculating and how uh, sort of, you know, eager to make as much profit as possible um, in these in these specific court cases. So but for me, it was it was the maritime trading chapter that really uh, sort of proved that that the kind of mentality, the uh, motivation for profit and really the kind of 
you know, uh, no holds barred, anything goes, you know, pursuit for of wealth, you know, on on the open seas and sort of beyond the reach of any sort of legal um, enforcement. Like you were saying, I, it really shows how the 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 profit oriented, the profit maximizing, the wealth maximizing um, mentality. Um, manifested itself within a specific transaction. So, so th- within these individual economic deals, I think we could see a lot of the best um, evidence for this mentality, w- which, which really is, it's not just characteristic of modern capitalists, but people operating on the fringes and taking advantage of loopholes in the system and, and trying to maximize, you know, um, in, in ways that, that might be, if not illegal, certainly on the sort of touching on um you know, what might be ethical or, or moral um, in, you know, in, in the modern world. What was the benefit of wealth maximization for them? Was it simply a matter of acquiring uh, the, the stability and comfort that came with wealth? Or were there added advantages to, to gaining as much profit as possible? Wealth um, provided so many benefits in ancient Greece. And, and this is one of the things that people have argued um, sort of against profit and wealth maximization. Uh, often they said people sought honor, they sought public standing, and uh, that wealth was sort of seen as, a, or at least, at least wealth maximizing activity was seen as kind of like a, a, a sketchy, dirty, sordid thing. And, and this idea comes from the sort of um, statements that we get from ancient philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, which which I distinguish in this book between prescriptive and descriptive. So these prescriptive statements we see in Aristotle and Plato come from philosophers who just want people to get along. They want their city-states to be thriving. They don't want citizens to be taking advantage of each other economically because that creates a wider wealth gap between rich and poor. It disenfranchises the middle class. And um, it, it leads to a concentration of wealth among who they thought were the most sketchy and untrustworthy and wicked people. There's, there's a thing in ancient Greece that wealth, wealth is blind um, because uh, the, the goddess wealth, because um, if she could see, she would give she would give money to the good people. But instead, it's all the wicked people who have it. <laughs> but but when, when you're thinking of an aristocratic system and here I bring in the uh, the work of Torstein Veblen and the um, sort of highest members of the leisure class, they engage in different kind of economic behavior than people who are trying to um, rise up through the economic and social ladder. So the people at the very top don't want to sort of visibly be engaging in profit-oriented activities on the market because this makes it look like they don't have as much money um, as they actually do. So for them, appearing like they just live lives of leisure is it's essential to cementing and, and demonstrating and proving their, their status at the very top uh, of the social and economic elite. But everyone who's trying to rise up through the ladder is is engaging in this kind of market-oriented, profit-maximizing activity because they're not yet at that point where they can just sort of sit back um, and demonstrate their, their wealth through their leisure. But the other thing is that the people um, who are at the top, they're not just sitting on their wealth, right, like a dragon sitting on a pile of money. They're still investing it in agriculture and cash crops, 
uh, banking, often money lending, and the um, kind of money that they're able to bring in um, comes from their ability to, to monopolize the land. So, so one thing that we see is that the aristocracies of the ancient world are kind of the end of a long-term process of monopolization that comes out of uh, competition in the open market for land. And, and when you think of it in these terms, it looks like these large estate landowners who have large numbers of uh, slaves and livestock um, in the competition in which they're beating out middle and lower class people for the competition for land, um, they're starting to look a lot more like modern corporations beating out uh, smaller mom and pop shops. And so once you get to that sort of um, level where you've acquired a large amount of land for yourself, you can let the land produce. You can you can bring in your profits. You are um, really in, in control over one of the most important um um, factors of production, which is the land itself, which is also the capital. So the um, the, the sort of the dynamics of what we see happening up at the top and in the most wealthy people are much more complicated than what people have argued in the past. But um, as they demonstrate, people get honor, they get standing, they get all of these uh, great benefits. There, there's no insurance in the ancient world, so money brings you safety. It helps feed your family. It helps buffer you against. Uh, risk that comes from, you know, warfare or disease or bad weather. So all the things that, um, and actually the way the ancient Greeks described the lives of the gods and of the golden age uh, of humanity back in the old sort of mythical days when, when human beings were, you know, sort of closer to the gods, the way they described the gods living and the way that they described the people of the golden age living um, are the same way that they describe the benefits that aristocrats and the super wealthy have. So if you're an ancient Greek and you can maximize your profit and your wealth and you keep your enterprises going, making money, you can also uh, share in a lot of the benefits that people in um, the the golden age of humanity or even the gods themselves had. So, so these kinds of like freedom from worry, freedom from anxiety, freedom from... Um, uh, the risk of losing everything all at once in one bad harvest. There were so many benefits that came with wealth, and and a lot of this hasn't been discussed in the in the scholarship before. So I was glad I was able to bring all that into the book as well. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could we ask what you're working on now? Sure. Yeah, this is um, uh, two two projects that are coming out of um, this original this original one. So the first is a case study that started to uh, get too big for the book. And um, so I started writing an article about it. It's this famous uh, Athenian general, Nicias, who also was one of the most brutal enslavers of the ancient world. He had a thousand uh, enslaved people working in his silver mine. And he's famous from um, Thucydides, from the uh, disastrous Sicilian expedition that that almost brought Athens to um uh, to to defeat in the Peloponnesian War, although they were they were able to keep fighting on for almost another ten years, which is uh, really fascinating in itself. But his um, his sort of uh, approach to economic um, activity is really interesting because he has a um, a whole range of evidence that that describes his 
um, religious beliefs and his uh, spiritual practices. And uh, he's often said to be very superstitious. But when we look at his um, money-making activity and also his activities as a, as a general, he seems to be uh, coldly calculating and as rational as you could possibly be. So um, using him as sort of a model, I'm, I'm exploring in what might be a short book, a um, sort of discussion of how the ancient Greek religious mentality affected uh, the way that their per- economy before- performed. Because old arguments in the past have claimed that uh, because Greeks were dedicating so much wealth to the gods, that, that this took it out of circulation and that it sort of froze economic activity the way a, a like a depression where there's no circulation of money would would freeze activity so that the ancient economy was permanently in a depressive um, sort of uh, crunch for money because it was all sitting at sanctuaries but this is not the case and and when you're when you're looking at his economic mentality his religious beliefs and then how much wealth was actually dedicated at ancient Greek sanctuaries, you get a totally different picture. And it looks like the economy is functioning uh, quite well. So, so this is something I'm going to be looking at. Um, but my, my major project is following from this book. And I'm um, saying that it's a um, wide range of institutional factors that can explain the difference between the ancient and the modern economy. Um, whereas people have argued for um, differences in rationality or psychological differences or a totally different mentality, I'm saying that the fact that the ancient Greeks did not have uh, corporations and the fact that they did not have things like um, international land market, uh, that these factors are actually more important for explaining why the ancient Greek economy um didn't evolve past the point that it did. And, and what we're really talking about here is, is long-term theories of development and sophistication. And a lot of this is very teleological. But what I'm really trying to do here is to show that you can have rational behavior, the way I argue in this first book, um, but that without these sort of institutions of the modern economy and the technology, let's, let's be honest here, the Industrial Revolution um, machinery was, was so important for that. But because we don't have the institutions of the modern economy, especially corporate uh, personhood and corporate immortality for 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 private business wealth, um, the institutions of the ancient Greek world channeled capital and money flow, money accumulation in very different ways. And uh, a lot of the um, arguments in the past have been that this is all a sign of irrationality. But what I'm arguing is that it's actually... Um, uh, what people are doing are a rational response to the institutional realities that they did have. And, and, and what we're going to see, I hope, uh, in the end with this book is a kind of a, a, a reassessment of a lot of the um, sort of long term trends in economic history in the ancient Greek world and how uh, these can all be described um, by, by looking at this very different institutional structure and the uh, choices people made with their profits and, and their capital investments. Well, those both sound like fascinating projects. I wish you the best of luck with them. Thank you so much. Yeah, and really the goal in the end is to bring the ancient economy, pre-modern economy, uh, more into dialogue with, with the economic history of later periods because um, people who study 
later periods and other societies depend on us, the experts who work on the pre-modern world, to to tell them what happened because they just don't have the time for the training to to look at the primary sources themselves. But um, what I'm hoping is that this is going to be a step towards sort of bringing not just ancient Greece, but also um, ancient India, Mesopotamia, Africa, the pre-modern, um, pre-Columbian Americas, um, and pre, pre-modern Europe into sort of a longer discussion where we can see how what did happen in the modern industrial capitalist system uh, was, was not the kind of um, transformation that, that has often been argued, but it's actually a very slow, gradual process which suddenly accelerates um, in the 19th century. But um, really what this is all pointing to is to try to bring um, periods that are often studied separately into closer dialogue so that we can have a better idea of, of what it really was that created the modern economy. And and the more I look, the more I see it's uh, the result of there's technological innovation and institutional innovation, but also um, the same kind of... Um, just, um, you know, rapacious, attacking imperialism, stealing of wealth and funneling it back to the uh, colonizing imperialist homeland uh, that we see throughout all of world history. So so I think if we can sort of reframe a lot of modern economic, what we would call progress, or a lot of people in the field have called progress before, in those terms, I think we can get at a more accurate view of long-term economic history overall and and where the ancient world, uh, generally uh, speaking, sort of fits into all of that. Well, that's a very ambitious goal and, and a very worthy one, too. I, I look forward to seeing how it develops. Thank you so much. Yeah, it'll be uh, probably the work of a lot of different people, but I'm glad, <laughs> yeah. to be able to, glad to be able to contribute just a little bit to that. Well, Michael, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. You too.